Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Radio Curious is a program with those we wonder about. I've often wondered about Woodstock of 1969. I've often wondered how it got going and what its ramifications were. Why does the recollection of Woodstock make some people ecstatic and other people want to puke? So I thought I'd ask Wavy Gravy a man with insight on the subject far beyond most other people. I met with Wavy Gravy in the studios of Radio Curious in July of 2000, and we talked about Woodstock. It seems like it was almost yesterday. Would you like, would you like some water? No, you're referring to... Uh, uh, Woodstock 1 or Woodstock 2. It's just that well, with it, the advent of Woodstock 2, there was so much uh, reminiscence of of Woodstock 1, the, the phrase ad nauseum would not be out of line, I think. But certainly uh, in a moment to rise above the, the, the nauseum of surviving not one but two Woodstocks, Farm Aid 7, and 25 years of kids' camp. Uh, I remember doing Woodstock 2 and going at it 12 hours, and they're saying, how do you do this? It's so amazing. And I said, next to kids' camp, this is a piece of cheese. It's only you know, a couple hundred thousand people and they're able <laughs> rolling to get, in the mud. They're able to uh, entertain themselves. At Woodstock, kids have to... Uh be able to entertain themselves. Well, they, they did have that ability. They got very creative with the mud at both Woodstocks. And I think that the 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 second Woodstock is very uh, underrated. And I'd like to speak to that rather than the, the, the first Woodstock, which uh, uh, became amazing because it was a uh, declared uh, a, a national sur- uh, uh, survival zone. Uh, what is what is the what am I searching for here? The press declared national disaster. That's a right. national disaster zone. I had a line in the film: "There is a little bit of heaven in every disaster area," and that's what is true. If you're uh, throwing sandbags against a levee in uh, in Central California, or you're uh, coping with an earthquake or whatever, people rise above their social status and pitch in and help out. And uh, because we were uh, classified this disaster zone, the focus of the media was that that white blinding light that uh, Andy Warhol gives us all 15 minutes of. And we all realized that uh, the whole world was watching and we could show the world how it would be if uh, we ran the show at our collective best. And so we lifted ourselves up by our collective uh, uh, bootstraps and uh, uh, we're amazing together. But the minute we thought, like, boy, I'm cool, I'm doing this, we just fall on our butt in the mud. Who uh, gave it this all-encompassing um, denomination of disaster zone? I think it was, uh, that's what uh, the, must have been the governor, huh? Doesn't it go like that? 
Uh, I guess. Pete Wilson declares the Central Valley a disaster zone, isn't it? Isn't it how it goes? Yeah. Well, was Woodstock declared a disaster zone? Absolutely. They were dropping Gatorade on us from helicopters. That's how I first got hooked on this. You got a serious Gatorade Jones out of that. <laughs> well, one, one of the things I wanted to ask you about um, was your buddy Tiny Tim. And uh, tell us about oh, the true that's, origins. That's before of Tiny even Tim. Woodstock won, back in yeah. the ancient times. Back when in, I was, uh, in the pre-60s. Uh, uh, wavy gravy activist clown, frozen dessert, uh, temple of accumulated error. My chromosomes have amnesia, but let's see if we can bubble back into this uh, into this time frame of uh, when I was uh, a teenage beatnik on the cusp of hippiedom. Uh, In what uh, town? New York City, the Cement Apple, and I'm working on McDougal Street, reading my poems uh, uh, year after year, working my way through the neighborhood playhouse on 58th Street and. Uh, uh, Different folks had uh, come by, and I remember uh, explaining to uh, uh, John Mitchell that we could make just as much money if we had a little folk music along with the poetry. That's not Attorney it, General John Mitchell, who went to jail for Nixon. No, it? this is John Mitchell, who fled to Tangiers after he told on the police and uh, the mafia were looking to put him away, and he started the Fat Black Pussycat Cafe in Tangiers. And it was the Fat Black Pussycat Cafe in the Cement Apple that myself and Tiny Tim and Moondog went into and started the first Phantom Cabaret. And we got raves in the New York Times. We got the front page of the Village Voice. And uh, the next day, the sheriff came and padlocked the club because they owed all this back taxes. So the phone was ringing and ringing and ringing. That's when I came up with the title, It's the Phantom Cabaret. What happened? We moved to the Living Theater. They suggested that we could perform at their place uh, after midnight uh, behind the barbed wire of the brig, which was this play by Ken Brown about the Marine Corps prison. And we're still in the cement apple in what year? In uh, My chromosomes have amnesia. Early 60s. All right. Early, semi-early 60s. And at, at midnight, we would gather with the cast of the Living Theater and huddle up and go... Bong, bong, and sometimes we do 12, sometimes 20 or 30, depending on the mood of the moment, and then Tiny would come out, and he'd have his little shopping bag and ukulele, and as I was saying to my friend Barry Melton, he is the descent into the cathedral of the Philco radio, that all these old-time guys would would come down inside him, and and he would uh, channel them, into existence. One time, he had turned into Rudy Valley for over half an hour. Who, Barry Melton? No, Tiny Tim. All right. And Tiny Tim came off the stage and said, Mr. Romney, Mr. Valley came inside me and he wouldn't leave. And what did Mr. Romney say? Barry, Tiny Tim said, I've lost my Crosby power. <laughs> and my, my brain started to shrink. And then Moondog came up to me and said, when I went blind, it was like suffocating. <laughs> and I started to get this terrible headache. And I walked outside, and there was a dead cat in a burning mattress. <laughs> and uh, uh, this guy screaming, I'm an American. I killed 40 
three Japanese in Iwo Jima and his wine bottle goes crashing and, and I'm, my head is like pounding. And I go into this, uh, I go into this um, coffee house called the Fat Black Pussycat Cafe and Theater. They allowed the coffee house uh, to reopen, but not the, uh, but not the uh, theater part. And I, I sat down at a table and there was a bottle of Excedrin and uh, I took six without water to keep my image crisp. Is this the same fat black pussycat that later re- relocated to Tangier? Yes. Yes. And uh, the Excedrin turned into be Benny's. I just want to say that... that... <laughs> six days later, I tried to sneak home before my tongue woke up. The, the question about Tangiers was... Uh, interjected by our friend Barry Melton, who was also here for this recording. Wavy, can you uh, tell us about some of the um, uh, more curious people who you've encountered in your travels, some of those that we can truly wonder about? Let me talk a little more about Tiny Tim, because I don't think they get too much curiouser than him. Uh, I discovered him at the Page 3 in New York City, which was a, uh, a lesbian bar, and he was enamored with uh, this woman named Miss Snooky. And he, he, he used to be able to go into Times Square and make little records for a couple of dollars. And he made this wonderful record. Oh, Miss Snooky, lovely Miss Snooky. You are so beautiful. You have the world's most beautiful face. And he sang to her face. And so I had this little uh, album, which I still have today, in a uh, jacket with uh, Lenny Bruce in a cop suit. Uh, <laughs> holding it up. And I remember taking uh, the Tiny Tim uh, Miss Snooky record to Lenny uh, when, he was, uh, when he had his broken leg and he would play it over and over and over. And finally, he and Tiny Tim did a show together called uh, uh, Lenny Bruce Speaks for Profit, Tiny Tim Sings for Love. But I'm way jumping the gun here. I thought, you know, eventually he wouldn't be Oh, this is And so I, I thought he would eventually uh, just, hello, uh, I'm Herbert Corey, and Tiny Tim is my shtick. But no, he was what he was. He was uh, a, a total, uh, a total rutabaga on Mars, mixed fruit tossed at the Northern Lights, if you will. And so uh, we did this show at the Living Theater. It was such a big hit that I decided to move it to San Francisco. And uh, convinced a uh, coffee house owner in North Beach to uh, uh, bring in Tiny Tim. We were meeting him at the train station with a Rolls Royce full of daffodils. Great hype. Uh, the photographs circulating everywhere. And his, his tune to Miss Snooky being beamed out. And uh, uh, the day before his arrival, we get this telegram that says, uh, Sorry, I can't come. My mother won't let me. <laughs> Okay, so the whole thing collapses. I end up in an improvisational theater called The Committee. Many years later, uh, I have left The Committee. I'm living in Los Angeles, and uh, with my friends uh, Del Close and Severin Xavier Tickledarden III uh, and uh, some sitar player, we reopened the Phantom Cabaret, and Tiny Tim comes out uh, to join us. He has uh, already been a big success on 
on Merv Griffith and uh, Johnny Carson and, and is a huge star, but he feels that he let me down in those ancient times. So he returns and he's living in the uh, rear of the uh, house. And uh, <laughs> we, my wife and I are preparing to do this event called the Lord Richard Buckley Memorial Sunset. Another curious gentleman, Lord Buckley, uh, we sent out these beautiful invitations with Lord Buckley saying, the flowers, yes, the flowers, but the people are the true flowers, and it has been a pleasure to have momentarily strolled in your garden and maps to Moonfire Mountain, which was this uh, mountaintop run by Lewis Beach Marvin III, who is the heir to green stamps and was the man in the black clothes at Woodstock One, followed by several adoring sheep. <laughs> so, meanwhile, it's raining and raining and raining, and people are phoning saying, "What about this sunset? Are we supposed to? Are we going to do it? What about the sun?" The phone is ringing and ringing, and Tiny's got about an inch of cold cream on his face, and he's never seen to eat or drink in public at that time. He used to come home from the gig. We would go to the Hollywood Ranch Market to shop, and he would buy like. 13 cans of Popeye spinach, and that's it. <laughs> and take it back to his room. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it wasn't. So <laughs> I go to sleep with, are we going to call off this big sunset event? We, my wife had cooked up all this pineapple chili and uh, get up the next morning and go downstairs, and there's like uh, 50 people in, in Deglo clothes cooking eggs. <laughs> The merry pranksters have arrived with the Grateful Dead. And Tiny Tim saying, Oh, Mr. Romney, Mr. Neil Cassidy came and beat on my door at three in the morning and he wanted some grass and he was standing on a whole lawnful. <laughs> uh, later, when Tiny Tim, and I, I think that, that, that none of these people that... that uh, that I, I would say exploited Tiny Tim, they, they didn't really understand him and they didn't really give him his lead because he was a, a direct channel into all those, those old entertainers that lived on those 78s. And he would indeed channel them and, 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 and turn into those uh, people for our edification and amazement. And I'm sure that all of us have been channeled by something one time or another. I I was uh, once totally consumed by uh, Samuel Langhorne Clements uh, in the middle of the Gulf War, where I uh, usually appeared in a dove suit which uh, <laughs> with chicken feet and a, a beak of a uh, eagle, actually, but uh, the chicken feet I sprayed white, and I was the mutant dove of peace and... Uh, the police kept maintaining the olive branch was a weapon, but that was neither. Before you get into the, to the ramifications of the mutant dove of peace, I want to remind our listeners that my guest this week is Wavy Gravy. You're listening to Radio Curious, interviews with those we wonder about, and my name is Barry Vogel. Um, I want to ask you a question. All right. How does a guy who uh, probably went to elementary school uh, named Hugh Romney, grow up to be wavy gravy. Just one breath at a time. <laughs> and, you know... Where'd the name change Stuff come happens. From? Where'd the uh, name change come from? Okay, after uh, Woodstock, we were uh, asked to do uh, life support. Uh, the hog farm, first of all, 
coming off the plane into uh, New York City for Woodstock One. There's the World Press. We think we're there to do uh, to do fire trails and fire pits. And I had ordered up a bear suit and a rubber shovel that I could jump out of the bushes and chastise hippies that built dopey fires. And we were doing a free kitchen. We got off the aircraft. There's the world press saying, oh, you're the hog farm. You're here to do the security, right? I thought, my God, they've made us the cops. I says, says, do you feel secure? The guy says, yeah. I said, see, it's working already. He said, what are you going to use for crowd control? I said, cream pies and seltzer bottles. And they all wrote it down. <laughs> I thought the power of manipulating the media. Yes. So we did become the police force. And I remember uh, the powers that be wanting to know how many uh, armbands we needed for security. And Ken Babs of the pranksters who drove up in uh, the further bus uh, with his cohort said, well, how many people are expecting at this thing? They said, well, could be a couple hundred thousand. He said, well, that'll be sufficient. <laughs> and Michael Langren goes white. And I said, relax, Mike. We'll, we'll do like a couple hundred. And he relaxed. And then we, of course, copied it on a potato and started printing up these armbands as fast as our arms could move. And every time we went out into the audience, we'd always have like 10, 15 armbands in our pocket. And if we see somebody act responsibly, we'd give them three. And until by the time Woodstock was over, a lot of people were wearing those armbands because we were all the police. You know, that was, that's, that's the game that I've been playing for the last uh, 30 years, along with trying to liberate a microphone between acts uh, to the general population. And uh, <clears throat> so we were asked to come to Texas because they were having uh, a rodeo Give us a time and place now when mm-hmm. you went to Texas. This is the month after Woodstock. In the uh, fall of 1969. Absolutely. Uh, I would say, yeah, early fall, late summer. Late summer, I would okay. say. Because uh, we had just gotten back to New Mexico uh, from uh, Woodstock 1. We had so much media, our little 12-acre ranch looked like a DP camp with a view. I couldn't put all these hippies had piled all this stuff on their cars, and they've come to live with us forever. And uh, we, fortunately, were summoned to Texas because there was a little friction between the rock and rollers and the rednecks. And they thought that, that we did such a good job at Woodstock 1 because we got an amazing amount of credit for, for uh, uh, allowing ourselves to be moved archetypically by this amazing energy. I mean, we didn't do anything except, uh, you know... Hand out arm I hands. felt like... Howdy Doody had more free will than I did. You could just feel the invisible wires, you know. And, I mean, I don't know how it happened. I got up. We were trying to uh, uh, pass out. We introduced granola to hippies there. But hippies had never tasted granola before. And I got on the microphone. I says, good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. And that's when we introduced. And we brought the granola to hippies in sleeping bags in Dixie cups. And they would look at it and frown and say, this stuff looks like gravel. <laughs> but but it, it, did, it did catch on. And uh, so we were invited to, uh, to Woodstock, uh, from Woodstock to the Texas Pop Festival. On Lake Dallas, a beautiful uh, venue uh, the, uh, for a campsite. Plenty of water. Woodstock, we didn't have any water until tons of it fell on us from the sky. Uh, there was Lake Dallas, a lovely campsite, except the uh, rednecks were driving through the campsite. 
I understand with whale hooks attached to the back of their bumpers looking to snare freaks in sleeping bags. This is uh, what I was told. I remember pitching my little pup tent between three trees. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Oh, God. We, we, we established this free stage. Well, there's only so much of this story I can tell. Well, we're, uh, we're, getting, uh, <laughs> we're, we're getting near to 9.30. We're moving there. Okay, well, we, we established this free stage, okay? And uh, uh, suddenly, uh, I was sort of laying there on the free stage, and uh, there, this announcement came up. B.B. Uh, King is here with his bus. Uh, uh, could we clear the stage, please? And I started to get up, and I felt this hand on my shoulder. And I looked up, and there was BBK. And he looked down at me, and he says, You, wavy gravy. And I said, Yes, sir. <laughs> he says, Well, wavy gravy, we can work around you. And he leans me up against his amplifier, whips out his guitar name, Lucille, and Johnny Winter came out of the wings and started... Uh, they played together, and I remember he wanted a beer, and somebody gave him a quart, and he took a swallow and passed it out in the audience. Then there were, you know, like thousands of people there, and everybody just let it touch their tongue. And he came back to BB with a swallow that was probably mostly saliva, but he sucked it up anyhow. <laughs> and he and Johnny Winter played till the sun came up. And what what we had to do that was so extraordinary was. Uh, uh, the the uh, Job's daughters went nuts with all the skinny dipping. See, everybody was naked at Woodstock, uh, and so the people in Texas didn't want to be outdone in the skinny dipping department, and they had Lake Dallas. So the sheriff comes to me at 3 o'clock in the morning, wake, waking me up. You people showed the world at Woodstock that you could police yourselves. The Job's daughters are going to call the National Guard if the skinny dipping don't stop. <laughs> I couldn't imagine what the National Guard would do to the skinny dippers. <laughs> but I said, well, I could try and get the word out if you lend me your boat. I knew he had this big, sleek boat. He had the keys to his boat out and dangling. And I gave them to uh, Peter White Rabbit and Old Salt, and we started buzzing around uh, Lake Dallas. And I've got this May West on and this cowboy hat that belonged to Tom Mix with the yarmulke inside it that Lenny Bruce gave me so I could say, howdy, goyim. And I'm jumping off the boat and treading water with a bullhorn in my hand saying, Ahoy, Nudo! If you want to stay high, you got to put your pants on. <laughs> the Job's daughters have gone nuts. Can you dig it? And if you can, go swim over and tell that other guy. And just going all around the lake, Ahoy, Nudo! Ahoy, Nudo! And till finally, the sun is setting a lazy peach and there is not a bare ass in sight. Man, I am feeling so smug. I says, well, Peter, we've finally done it. And at that moment, here came this naked water skier with a hard on. Can I say that on the radio? It's a true story. Follow him around the lake. Till we run out of gas. Oh, my God. <laughs> you had to be there. <laughs> now, I had a grant at that time at Cal State teaching improvisation to neurologically handicapped kids under Dr. Alice Thompson. And uh, I went back, and I had this new group of kids, and I walked into this new group of kids, and I said, uh, uh, Hi, I'm Wavy Gravy, and the professors came running in afterwards. They said, Keep that name you saved a week's orientation. <laughs> Doesn't work on telephone operators. I say, Gravy, first initial W, or they'll hung up. <laughs> 
but if I say gravy first initial W, some operators will say, are you wavy gravy? And then they get very nice and help me make lots of calls. And what did your mother, does your mother think of this uh, name for you? My mother has moved on to the next frontier. My father's name was Hugh Romney, and my name was Hugh Romney. And I think that he was sort of relieved when he had to stop reading in the paper about Hugh Romney being arrested in New Haven for, you know, civil <laughs> unrest, and all the gang at the office would tease him and stuff like that. I think he, he, he sighed a, a secret sigh of relief when... Uh, I uh, ascended to gravyhood, and then to to become a flavor too. That was absolutely unbelievable. I was teaching uh, improvisation to uh, inner city kids in San Francisco. I'd say about four four and a half years ago, something like that. And and Ben Cohen, the ice cream Cohen, come out of the fog with David Harp, this guy that teaches uh, blues harmonica to musical idiots, and went to school with Ben. And they come up to me, and he Ben puts his hand on my shoulder. It's like a scene from uh, Casablanca. He says, we want you to be our flavor. Wavy, Just when uh, you thought it was safe to go back yeah. in the freezer. Huh? Wavy, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. It's certainly curious. Yeah. Before you go, I want to ask you the question I ask everybody, and that is, could you take a minute or two, not more than two or three, and uh, tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? Mm. Well, I'm actually reading two books at once uh, at the moment. One is called uh, The Laughing Sutra. And it's about uh, uh, this young Chinese uh, monk. And there are very few monks in mainland China. But somehow or other, he has to... uh, uh, His teacher, who rescued him as an orphan... Uh, is dying and he wants to have the laughing sutra. So this young, young apprentice monk is taken on himself uh, to search out the, the the laughing sutra in the United States. And they're they're hanging out in the uh, the Bay Area. And he's with some super like Chinese monkey deity guy who uh, is wearing leather armor and uh, is a master of Chinese boxing that is uh, taken on this uh, adventure with him, who actually rescued him when he was a young child by this big waterfall in China, who is probably, this guy is probably about a thousand years old. So this is an enjoyable book that I am uh, also hauling along with Angela's Ashes. (laughs) Which is one of the, you know, Angela's Ashes, of course, is the, the, uh, the story of these young children uh, that that are born uh, uh, of Irish uh, immigrants that immigrate back to Ireland and are so poor they eat dirt, and it's it gets whenever I can't handle it anymore because it's so sad and so beautiful and glorious and funny. I go back to the Laughing Sutra and I sort of bounce back and forth and do it like that. Well, Wave it gravy. Thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Curiously refreshing. <laughs> Wavy Gravy was one of the founders of Woodstock. The books that he recommends are The Laughing Sutra by Mark Salzman and Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, 
radiocurious.org. And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.